When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, August 11th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, as always. Well, as most of the time, when I'm not on PTO or she is, or we just don't want to record or do something else. <laughs> Coming to you from bookriot.com, we're in the do- dog days. Ramon asked me what the dog days of summer were, and I said, well, I think it's late summer where it's hot. And it feels like things have gone just a little too long, right? Is mm-hmm. that what the dog days are? That's my understanding of it. Definitely my experience of it. My dog spends these days just like sprawled out with as much surface area of his body as possible on the <laughs> coldest parts of the floor. Like just absorb that cool however you can. That's right. And that's, I'm feeling that in my soul. Yeah. Uh, so we're a bit in the slow news part of the year except not really there's we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about um i guess before we get into it some front matter most recent patreon episode was my solo reading lives um you get to hear me talk about tents a lot of talk about tents more than you would think um i know that seems strange uh and then also coming up next week we're going to record right after this show we'll go in the patreon feed next week we're doing a diet version of Adaptation Nation. I didn't do the full coverage for this. I didn't do the okay. whole thing. I don't know if you did, but I, I read it and watched it and thought about it, but I didn't go read the stuff like we do for Adaptation Nation. A little bit of a less formal version of me, and yet it's the most serious book about you could probably read in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh-huh. um, had, remind me, had you both read and seen this before? I had read it, but I read it when it was, I think, fresh out in paperback, so probably 2006-ish, I had not seen the film. So that was new to me. So that's new to you. Uh, Michelle and I had a long conversation about this morning. She refused to watch it with me last (laughs) night for reasons I understand. (laughs) Bob had no interest either. He was like, what is it about? Never mind. (laughs) Well, she's seen it and she likes it, but as the the coiner of the phrase, five alarm snot bomb, bomb, she knows of what she speaks. You don't voluntarily get bombed. That's interesting. I kind of wondered what it would be like to watch that movie having seen it before and and also yes. knowing the big spoilers of the story. So um, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, it's Kazuo yeah. Ishiguro. I say Nobel Prize winner. Ever heard of him? Yeah. And I think the book that put him on, well, Remains of the this Yeah, book he won the Booker movie, for Remains of the Day in 89. But in terms of like Remains of the Day is like modern, well, it's 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 a period piece. This is oh, Ishiguro can do things you haven't even heard yeah. of before. This he, is when he started to get weird. Right. He he kind of became stranger and specfic became, literary specfic became his milieu. And as I think the ablest practitioner of it, and as this, as this is now the ascendant artistic genre in writing, mm-hmm. it makes sense that Ishiguro kind of, we could talk about this. Um, if Whitehold holds the American crown, who holds the global crown for us? I think it's issue grow for me, but we can talk about that yeah. more if you want to stick around. I'm into it. All right. And uh, well, let's do a sponsor break and we have some more follow up and other things to do. Uh, follow up from a comment from the Patre- patrons, 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 about the Canadian study that we talked about, about Canadians are reading a book a week after. Uh, <laughs> Sharifa and I talked about that last oh, week. Okay, I didn't listen to that show. Okay, fine. That's got. I haven't listened to you guys yet. I want to get back to that. And you've talked about the PRH stuff, which we're going to do some more here, but I'm no, I don't want to do that right now. You put in brackets for me. Do I need a David McCullough RIP moment? And thank you, Rebecca Shinsky. I do. Um, okay, just Let's for a second. It. What a giant! McCullough passed away um, last week. I was looking just a little bit over his 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 corpus and then the titanic work really is the great bridge and the power broker um and wait i'm messing people up i'm thinking, thinking of, Bob of robert Carroll. Carroll. i'm sorry dave mccullough is really more of an american history in american history and i i was thinking about Cairo too that's why i'm getting confused Cairo is like the hipsters mccullough weirdly <laughs> 
right? Yes. You know what I'm talking about? I do. He's uh-huh. like, the people that don't want to read The Power Broker, they'll go read The Wright Brothers. But, and I don't say that as denigration, I think to be to be a writer of history and as deep and rigorous as McCullough was and be as popular as McCullough is, is no easy feat. And I, that's what I was thinking about. Many mm-hmm. more people have read McCullough than have read Robert Caro, even if I myself would prefer Robert Caro. But I also like the Wright Brothers. I like the one about Ohio. I can't even remember what it's called now. Um, very enjoyable. And the question is, I had never thought about this before. Who holds the dad book crown? Oh. And was it McCullough? And it might have been. But Who's it, the guy who does the, the Hamilton biography? And Cherno. All other... Ron Cherno. Yeah. I thought about Cherno. I think he's got he's a little too specific at the presidential biography. I actually don't know the okay. whole Cherno situation. But if you're only doing presidential bios, presidential bios are always going to be thing. You know, Doris Kearns, good oh, ones. Like true. we've seen this from the from really since Washington and earlier, like in the early days of American history. But someone who can step out and do kind of anything they want and turn their attention to it and have Father's Day tables built around them at Barnes and Nobles. I think it's it's not Cairo because he's too wonky. He's too much of an archivist scholar. Uh, is it Gladwell? Hmm. Kind of don't think so. I don't think so either. I think you can draw some lines from McCullough to I don't know, like Bill Bryson-y kinds yeah. of things. Like McCullough makes history, and history is not boring, but it often writing about history is dry or inaccessible mm-hmm. or or wonkish as Caro can be, and he makes it accessible and interesting and fun enough that people opt for it yeah (laughs) like yes let me read this book about the wright brothers Mm -hmm. and bryson is a couple steps more accessible and funnier and going for a little more entertainment than edification but still edification and gladwell is like i would put gladwell even past Bryson, I think Gladwell takes himself more seriously than Bill Bryson does, but he's really uh, aiming for like nuggets of nuggets of education that are really about feeling entertained and like on the hook while you're getting it. Yeah. Before anyone asks me, The Great Bridge is McCullough. That's 1972. And so his first book was The Johnstown, The Johnstown Fund. I've read more of these than I thought, by the way. Mm. I, I didn't realize I'd read all these. I haven't read The Path Between Seas, which is the creation of the Panama Canal, though I really want to, but it's a billion years long. Then we, then we did into, we did some bios, like straight up Truman, Adams, mm-hmm. Roosevelt. But then he kind of, he did 1776. And I think that was the apotheosis. Is 1776, the whole kind of American Revolutionary War thing, all in one, um, really was an amazing cultural moment. I was, you know, in, in grad school for this and it sold a billion copies. It's still out there. And then after that, he decided to get, now, weird for McCullough is still all not that weird, but you could have seen where his next one is World War II or D-Day sure. or something like that. Mm-hmm. But instead, he wrote a Christmas Eve story, like this little World War One Christmas Eve thing, which is very odd. And then he does Americans in Paris, which is really cool. And then he does the great, and then he does the Wright Brothers, and then he does this Pioneers book that's just about Ohio settlers. So he really used his clout to be like, I want to write about not Lincoln. Like, he didn't do a Lincoln biography. He didn't do a Washington. I mean, again, they're in some mm-hmm. of these. But I, I thought late McCullough, I was more interested with what he did with his clout than what he did to get his clout. I guess that's where I'm kind of coming from. It's always on. more interesting or almost always more interesting. Well, like, except if what you there, want is 1776. I think for yeah, normies, they want, um, <laughs> no, I'm serious. They want 1929. <laughs> Or they want yeah. 1864. You could have seen a version of that, and he maybe s- sells more books. Like, how many people that like 1776 picked up A Greater Journey, Americans, Paris, with huge, there was a huge piece of that that's just about Americans going to medical school in Paris because there were no medical schools in the U.S.? I'm me. I find that fascinating. <laughs> but I don't think that's what people sign up for McCullough for. Fair enough. I love it when people are in like the fullest expression yeah. of the super specific thing that they are nerds about. And you can see that McCullough let himself spread his wings in those directions near the end of his mm-hmm. career. Because as you were saying, he had the clout to do it. He's like, this is interesting to me and I can make it interesting enough to enough readers. Let's go. Yeah. Um, he went to Yale. I mean, just he went to Yale and studied English. And then he was a member of Skull and Bones. Like he was a connected dude. Like he was upper, upper crust. 
Um, but then he, he, he went to go work for Sports Illustrated. Like he's a reporter by trade. And I think that really shows where Caro, Caro is more of a scholar by trade. He's a historic, like the thing that distinguishes Caro from McCullough, at least, and McCullough does his homework, don't get me wrong, but I listened to the Caro book about like how he does what he does. And he and his wife are in the archives pulling out ream after ream after ream after ream after ream. Mm-hmm. And I don't think McCullough goes quite that deep. I mean, it's going to be, is it three editions of the LBJ book? How many volumes of the LBJ biography are? That's, that's a completely different thing, and I, I would like all of them. But McCullough just came back towards mass market in a way that, that, that when he didn't come back. He is more mass market than, than Cairo. Cairo's the book that the McCullough fans buy and then leave on their <laughs> nightstand. <laughs> It is. Yes. Yeah. It's but it's true. interesting them being together. But I'm not sure I I'm not sure. I mean, I'm loathed. I'm not I'm not entertaining the Bill O'Reilly stuff in the world. Though from a sales Absolutely point, not. But from a sales point of view, I hear you the objection saying, Well, if you're looking at sales, I'm not looking at sales. I'm looking at general purpose Swiss Army dad book recommendations. And this this is and is not about gender and age, I should say. The dad book is a category unto itself. You don't have to be a dad to like it, and all dads don't like it. But everyone knows of which I speak right here. Maybe, it's, but I don't, are, people aren't picking up Chernow in the way they're picking up Gladwell. I've, I kind of wonder, and I, I, this is where I'm going to entertain to you, has the American history book been superseded as the quintessential dad book by some sort of popular Adam Grantie style professional development book. Yeah, I think professional development slash pop psychology that you can aim towards male readers particularly or that can be marketed as not just for the ladies Mm -hmm. uh, is where that is going. And the shift there, I think we probably can toss back to like the tipping point. The tipping point was a tipping point. Right. Um, yeah. And to Gladwell becoming ascendant in, and maybe the Freakonomics guys, I think they were before Gladwell, even like to taking social, economic, especially economic phenomena um, and making them, making these complex concepts distillable and mm. understandable by just lay readers which most of us are um in a in a fun way that yeah you fun and you feel like you're going to learn something they're also so much less intimidating even if you like yeah history i would think a much smaller percentage of the dad book audience is going to sit down and read the entirety of the mccullough book about the wright brothers than is going to be open to you know 189 pages of the tipping point mm-hmm. it's an easier sell yeah and i wonder you know caro does its own kind of thing but it kind of feels like mccullough was both representative and the last exemplar of this kind of american history white dudes from Yale that were members of Skull and Bones writing about American <laughs> history. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it feels like the worm has, not the worm has turned, but like that was an era and his passing signals something else. And that maybe even the, the twilight of the dad book, as we understand it, that the dad book has now become more of a, what it, what it represents is, I think, if you're interested in understanding the world and being entertained and wanting to like feel like you know something but don't want to pick up Cairo that that yeah. kind of is the sweet spot and i think you like you're going to read Michael Lewis but you're not going to read thinking fast and slow not to put too fine a point on it mm-hmm. you'll read the undoing project but you probably aren't going to read thinking fast and slow it's not cliff's notes for the real mccoy idea or research but it's presented in a slightly different way you know the the ultimate dad book weirdly is not a dad book i think it's ken burns civil war series um on video is the (laughs) ultimate dad book but you know what i mean it's i find this very interesting and we're going to talk about colleen hoover in a little bit but i wonder if they're not too dissimilar the idea of the dad book and and what a colleen hoover type and and a crawdad's book itself frankly represents but that's that's a galaxy brain point i'm going to say for a minute or two later 
All right. Do you have any McCullough under your belt? You said very little about this, and I'm wondering if you're skirting and indulging me. Do you have any <laughs> reading experience with McCullough, or I you just have, let I me do like my thing and cook for I've him? I've read parts of McCullough, yeah. like he's made his way into my house, because yeah. um, I, I live with a history nerd, but I have not done a whole McCullough. I have not read an entire McCullough book. History is not really my, no. like straight up history is not my reading jam. I like that mix either history through some creative lens the like the steven johnson um how we got to now kind of thing those kinds of things like that's it that that's an i mean that's an ideal dad book that's my flavor um rather than like one topic a very deep well on one topic i want to go kind of four years in the life of teddy roosevelt you're not into that you're not into what he did with writers on was it four it looks like it was 17 years, but I remember it being like, it's not even the whole thing. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. just not my particular flavor in my one wild and precious reading life. So I'm not just, you know, humoring you. I, I genuinely thought you would have interesting things to say about McCullough if you had read him. And I do think thinking about how to situate him and his work inside the broader galaxy of what we think about as dad books and the sort of requirement of digestibility in order to be super, super popular Mm -hmm. like that. And there's such a spectrum, like the the David McCullough flavor of digestibility is really different as we will get into later from like crawdads or Colleen Hoover. Yeah. Uh, I'm just scrolling through some obits and I didn't know this. I swear to God, I didn't, but uh, McCullough narrated the civil war by Ken Burns. So there you go. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Just couldn't, couldn't write it up any better than that for me. In this essay, I will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't even in an essay. That's just, that's just putting it out there. Uh, Let's see. Where do we want to go? Oh, speaking of crawdads for a second, you put this in here. Crawdads, a 33% (laughs) tomato rating. But having said that, it's going to earn out. It's made it money. Is. It's a moderate-sized hit. And when you think about how rare it is now to have a straight-to theaters... Remember, we don't use straight-to-video anymore. Straight-to-theaters is weirder than straight-to-video at this mm-hmm. point, I should say. Mid-budget film, $24 million budget, starring no one. I'm sorry, right. Daisy whatever. Michelle was like, well, Daisy whatever. I was like, yeah, Daisy whatever. That's what you just should... <laughs> no one knows who it is. Not Felicity Jones. That's all I know. That's who... <laughs> I know that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, they as you were saying, it's twenty four million budget to make it. When I looked earlier this week, it had brought in seventy four million in global box office. Um, that is seen. That ratio of box office to budget is seen as a success. It tapered out of theaters pretty quickly. I think we mm. probably could attribute a lot of the success to folks going to see it. You know, fans going to see it on the first weekend. And I'm going to call this the Margaret Atwood Testaments phenomenon, that Mm. there's a big deal right at the beginning, and then word gets out that it's not very good, and it falls off. Um, I did go read Roger Ebert's review of the Where the Crawdads Sing movie, uh, and it's very satisfying. (laughs) It must be RogerEbert.com's review, because Roger Ebert's been dead for a dozen years or so. But yes, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's fair. Just so we don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying to prevent I do emails. know that he's dead. Okay, yeah. yes, thank you very much. I do know that some, Caro and McCullough are different people, even though it didn't sound like it for a minute. I was, I was, I was warming up and getting my uh, pistons were firing. We'll just have a whole column of things to not ask Yeah, that's about okay. Today. Don't worry about that. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I think also maybe, maybe to recross the streams, and this, again, we're, we're, we're warming up to talk about a Colleen Hoover article that Laura Miller wrote for Slate last week that several, thank you, thank you all the people out there that emailed to us, several people did because we were asking, keep your keep your eyes out. Um, I think the point you made earlier about your own dad-adjacent interests is interesting, and I think it reflects the something about the Hoover and Crawdads phenomenon. I don't think you can look at them and see two completely different phenomenons. I think they are related. Mm-hmm. If only by this, which is one of, if not the most underrated cultural force in the U.S. at least, is middle-aged white women. Yep. And teenagers, teenage girls, teenage boys, young men, young women, even even the older men in the form of dad books or whatever – but when we talk about book selling phenomenons that we've seen in our lifetime, almost if not every single one of them were driven by the center of the reading bell curve, which is a 44-year-old white woman who lives in a well-to-do suburb, right? I mean, yeah, and time I think, and time again, this is the story. It is. And 
women about that age buy more books than almost any other category. I would assume even the buying of most of these dad books is attributable yeah. to women are the consumer, the primary consumers of almost everything. We do almost all of the household mm-hmm. purchasing. Like It's like 79% of household purchasing in America is driven by women. Um, and that's not to say that those items are only used by women, no. but how many dads have who have read David McCullough or even have a David McCullough book like Collecting Dust on Their Shelves bought it themselves versus received that as a gift or because a woman in their life purchased it and made it available to them. So even women's mental models of the kind of books that dads and dad-shaped creatures want to read are really what's driving the apparent market or what the publishing industry understands to be the market and the interest in those kinds of things. And it's not like publishing doesn't try to serve them. They they right. do, right? They do. It's just mm-hmm. that the ones that take off like this, Twilight, Hunger Games, ooh, this is a good Patreon episode. The 10 biggest publishing phenomenons of our ooh, of our yes. of our understanding that we've seen, right? So we're not going to go back to people waiting on the dock for Dickens or something like that. Though that would be fun and you know I want to live in just weird literary history cul-de-sacs that no one else cares about, but like maybe <laughs> going back to our being con- starting with Oprah. We could start with Oprah. Mm-hmm. Um, and go from there. And Oprah is the is the example, is the example. And I don't know enough about sort of the history of publishing and sales between, say, you know, Camille Paglia wrote this book called The Feminization of American Culture. It's about the 19th century. But when was it that, from a sales and publishing point of view, that educated middle to upper middle class white women, and then I think this is now translating to women of multiple races and ethnicities now we're seeing this in all kinds of ways is the the pot at the end of the rainbow for publishers because if you get one of those to take off they will buy in droves and they'll read it and talk about it and give it to their friends and give it to their husbands or give it to who or give it to their their kids or their grandparents or you know someone they work with they become these nexuses for this kind of book, and there's a lot of potential out there. And people just keep trying to scratch the lottery ticket about which is the next Gone Girl going to be? Who's what is the book that 10 million white women, or 10 million middle aged, or 10 million upper class, or 10 mm-hmm. million college educated women are going to get really excited about and resonate with? And it just happens again and again. And I don't. It doesn't seem like. In movies, this really happens, which is why the crawdads thing was interesting to me, mm-hmm. right? We see it, I think, in TV, the Grey's Anatomies of the Worlds, the This Is sure. Us of the Worlds, you know, sitcoms on the whole. But I, I wonder if any demo in any other mass market art form is as dominant as 40 to 60-year-old edu- college-educated women are. Because that's what we're really talking about. It, race is correlated for structural racist reasons. But really, as people have gone to college, is what we're talking women who have yeah. gone to college of that age. I think you've probably got similar, I would just be guessing, similar demographic like desirability around like late teen, early adult men for video games. Yeah, they're right, right. teenagers yeah. for music. Yeah. Um, in in different in those different industries and i i kind of wonder about this history of modern publishing and catering specifically to you know middle and upper middle class women readers you could i think you could actually trace it all the way back to gone with the wind um that how that becomes a huge bestseller Mm. driven through the book of the month types of things but also word of mouth that's a, a really early example but a friend of mine in richmond named ellen brown wrote a book a couple of years back called margaret mitchell's gone with the wind that traces like the history of this and so much of it is women picking it up and talking to each other and and encouraging other women to pick it up and read it and it has that romance piece to it obviously that both crawdads and the colleen hoover like it is not an accident that the kinds of movies that are marketed to the female demographic and the books that often break out have some romance element to Mm -hmm. them and it's not because like women are just born with this desire for romance stories but these are the kinds of things that from the day we're born we're told to care about um, and the kinds of stories that are marketed to us and the places that we get to see characters who look like us and it's really interesting to i would love somebody to try to trace it all the way back i mean the base the bayesian prior would be if it's college education then when did women start going to college yeah you know at approaching or the curve going to now now more women than men in America go to college. Yeah, I but I assume sometime I in the '60s, this is when. Yeah, this I happened. think 
I would think like second wave feminism would be a really important mark for it with especially the college educated piece. But I'm not sure that you need the college educated piece of it for getting a book to be a phenomenon among women readers. What you need is enough women with enough leisure time and disposable income that they can spend time reading books and talking about them with each other and generating word of mouth. And that certainly existed before Mm -hmm. we got to second wave feminism. Yeah, and then the the corollary would be, and maybe it's the you know two epistemes from the same phenomenon, which is the rise of the in, the invention of the popularization of the in the living room book club. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a fascinating and important part um, of this story, and I, I find the whole thing fascinating. I can't really think of a publishing phenomenon in our you know post fourteen year old kind of paying attention to book sells that wasn't driven by speaking to and driven by this particular demographic. I guess my only question would be the Da Vinci Code. I'm not Mm. sure. I'd love to, that one feels, it it could still be. I'm not saying that it couldn't, but it's not so obvious to me. um, Yeah, I think Twilight and The Hunger Games are interesting ones because those are initially driven by teenagers and then those teenagers' parents get on board. Right. Which is what I think what we're seeing with Colleen Hoover right now, too. Yeah. Should we just get into this piece? Um, yeah, that let's Laura do Milner. So my headline is, is this the Colleen Hoover profile we have been looking for? Question mark. I did not answer it. I'm going to throw it to you, Rebecca, first. <laughs> is this the Colleen Hoover profile we've been looking for? No, because I don't think this is a profile. It's, there Colleen you go. Hoover. That's, that's a category <laughs> error. It's not what we want. So, okay, well, let's talk what this is, and then we can go back and say what we're actually looking for. Or yeah, what I'm this... actually looking for. This is a big sort of omnibus review, literary review of Colleen Hoover's body of work, mm-hmm. um, which is not surprising coming from Laura Miller. The, this is, of course, the tactic Laura Miller was going to take to talk about Colleen Hoover is let's look at the books themselves and analyze them. And I'm, I think, a, a noted, not super fan <laughs> of no. Laura Miller's work, but I'm grateful that this exists. And this was the first time I had taken time to learn about the contents of the Colleen Hoover books, because as you know, and I think we both like to kind of go into reading experiences as cold as possible and learn, like learn what the story is about as we are in the story. So I have very intentionally tried to not know what happens in any of these books. But as I was reading this piece, trying to figure out if this is a profile of Colleen Hoover, I learned a bunch of stuff about the plots of the books and what the fans seem to be into and like the hooks of them and how it connects to what's going on in, in book talk. So it's a big review. It takes a critical look. Laura Miller is a sort of traditional book critic. Um, So if that's what you're looking for, and I didn't realize that I wanted somebody to do this, but, um, but I'm glad that it's here. It takes them seriously. It takes these books that are huge on TikTok that all the teenagers are posting selfies of crying and it, it asks seriously, what are these books about and why might people be interested in them? And there is, I think, a little you can detect Miller's judgment about these books. You can tell that she's not a super fan, but she is trying to understand mm-hmm. what makes people interested in them. And that I felt was a service to me as a person who has also been trying to understand, like, we are going to read <laughs> one of these books together mm-hmm. in the next couple of months and talk about it. And that was my planned moment to figure out. What do people like about this? That's usually how we take our way into yep. getting that answer. But I was glad to see it. I do still want somebody to do the more traditional yep. like Vanity Fair, New Yorker profile where they hang out with Colleen Hoover for a week and write about that and talk to her about all kinds of things. What did you think? Once once I realized what it was, I stopped reading and skipped to the end because I, I do, like you said, like to take the book on its own terms kind of cold not cold but without having a lens that i'm even trying to forget a critical lens mm-hmm. i'm trying to forget so once i kind of scanned there i could I, I did a scan for were there quotes from publicists editors hoover herself or people and there weren't and i was uh-huh. like okay this is a group good I, I bookmarked it i'm gonna look at it i did look at the end paragraph because i, I would say where does miller end up and I'm not going to say it here because maybe people want to go into a cold, but I think the last couple of lines, I'm going to have a hard time forgetting. Let's put it that way for when I'm reading the book. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I I regret that I read as many details as I did <laughs> because now I have a little uh, 
I don't know, not quite dread, but something that's dread adjacent about reading the book <laughs> to talk about it. Um, I it wish did not that increase I just... your desire to read these books. It did not. It did not increase my desire to read this or to read any of them. Um, How about but the it texting is, it is we did to each other over my PTO about Colleen <laughs> Hoover has gone mainstream? We both had independently sourced. Well, we'd kind of said, kind of, we had said to on this show to each other that we hadn't seen the external non-internet appearances of Colleen Hoover books in the wild amongst the people that we know. And that changed for both of us over the last 10 mm -hmm. days. Now it could have been, you know, my, my, let's just say that I keep it pretty tight here in Portland a lot of the time. Um, but when I was back home, I'm talking to friends and family that, you know, I wouldn't be hanging out with if they weren't old friends and family. And so they represent a different look at the world than what I normally mm -hmm. get through my computer screen. And um, that's kind of it, yeah, except when I'm walking around and trying not to bother anybody. And you did too. Why don't you go first? What did it for you? And then I'll, then I'll say what, what did it for me. I was at the pool with a friend one afternoon last week and more than one person was laying around the pool reading It Ends With Us. And they were all about my age. And I was like, oh, it's here. This is the moment that I had with Fifty Shades of Grey when I was getting my hair done and two people were reading Fifty Shades of Grey at the same time. <laughs> Or seeing where the crawdads sing everywhere yeah. or that vacation where I saw uh, like everyone reading Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Like it is just now it's just it's out in the world and it's not just the teenagers. It mm -hmm. has hit. It really has hit the middle aged women. <laughs> there we the, are. Yeah. I'm gonna it, be, it was, did you see with it in the it airport? It ends with us. It ends with us. That's the book. Yeah. You they were both. It ends with us. Yeah. It's interesting. So I looked at, I went to, I was in several airports over my break, Dallas, Portland, Seattle, Kansas City. Don't be creepy. Um, <laughs> and at the Hudson Booksellers in Seattle, I didn't see it. It wasn't there. Okay. Um, at Elliott Bay, Elliott Bay has its own little indie. Elliott Bay, I mm -hmm. think, is probably the biggest, most well-known, highest profile independent bookstore in Seattle. I could be wrong. Maybe Back Bay Books. That's maybe a different place. Anyway, something about a bay in Seattle. They got lots of bays. Um, I didn't see it. I, I didn't go looking for it. Like I was looking at tables and like the bestseller list. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why on Hudson's, there wasn't even like an empty spot for it to be sell out. I don't understand that at all. But I think huh. that's the exception that's that pr proves the rule. Because they had all kinds of stuff. Like they had the, the J.M. Miro, the Ordinary Monsters. Like that's a, they had hardcovers. They, they had Sharon Novich's True Biz. Like it wasn't just whatever they had. Like someone is curating that and it's, it mm -hmm. was pretty interesting. No, the me was friends and family talking to people. They want to ask what, how, you know, the company's doing. What do you like to talk? What, what are you reading? And I'm trying not to tell them stuff. I know they're not going to like that. I nerd out about <laughs> on the show, get your own podcast people. But, um, several people had read Colleen Hoover and really liked it. And in those moments I kept my mouth shut because it wasn't about me. And also I mm -hmm. like to keep my friends, the few that I have, um, but the, the, the seminal one for me was not someone who saw it on TikTok but someone who got recommended it from her friends who were on TikTok. And then mm. this person then had been recommending it to other people and not just recommending it, but their favorite book of like the last 10 years. Oh, wow. Like, you know, Miller at the beginning is very careful to say people are attributing this to TikTok, but she says it can't just be sourced by an algorithm. The algorithm has to, th there has to be some kind of a feedback loop, right? Like something's getting put into this cycle yeah. and TikTok is certainly in, in, in ways we cannot and probably will not fully understand heightening, intensifying, and lengthening the phenomenon here. As Miller points out, five of the best, five of the 10 best-selling books last week by or Colin Hoover. I've never seen this before. Can you, do you remember anything even close no. to this? I mean, maybe when all three Fifty Shades of Grey books were bestsellers at the same time. Yeah. But that's the that's only... at least a series at least that those, right. these are not connected is my understanding right, these are standalone right, yeah. books and i think the twilight books were probably all bestsellers at the same time but right yeah those are all connected and you have to flow from one into the other yeah miller does make a really good point near the top of the piece that an algorithm can expose a lot of people mm -hmm. to a book but it can't make them read it and it really can't make them like it no and so the like the the sales of this book Maybe one big surge of it could be first attributed to TikTok at some point, but the fact that it's per the cycle is perpetuating itself because people are liking what they find. This was not the Margaret Atwood Testaments right. phenomenon of big deal, and then everyone finds out it's not as good as the hype, and they back off. And and crawdads didn't follow that pattern either. People really, really loved it. I had my own version of that experience you're talking about with somebody saying that um, 
It Ends With Us is their favorite book of the last 10 years with like an extended family member talking to me about how great Where the Crawdads Sing was. And I also was just like keeping my mouth shut. And I, I'm curious, what is it that you love about mm-hmm. this? Tell, like, tell me, I don't understand it, but I, I want to understand what is working about that. Uh, any book like this that, that tons of people are into, what, what's working about it um, for them? And I think Laura Miller, just to come back around to that piece, which you can read in the show notes, does a good job of asking that question and yeah. trying to answer it, even if she doesn't like the answer. Yeah. And, you know, great. This is going to support a lot of other books that we like. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of where I ultimately come down with this. I I, am, I actually am as interested as I've ever been in reading It Ends With Us. I'm really yeah. curious to see, and it's... I want to give it as fair shake for me as I possibly can. It'll just be our own taste and our own reading. But it is interesting that... We both were out there, and I don't know if we're behind the tipping point or, you know, some sort of weird anecdotal sample size, but it is fascinating that here at the dog days of this second summer of Colleen Hoover, because this really started last summer, maybe even early spring of 2021, as, as, as Miller really outlines there, I would like to know, I mean, there's some things I'm interested in, like, to get to, let's use the multiple people reading it in places where you're going to see other women reading whatever we call that, call it mm-hmm. the, the hair salon or by the pool or whatever we're going to call it. We'll call that the, the hair salon test just for now. In order to get to that stage, is it a fairly consistent number of books needing to be sold to get there? Mm. Like, do you need to sell a million copies to get to that point? And with Hoover, it's been consistent, but it wasn't a spike, right? It's been this rolling TikTok thing that has kind of had... It's come from an unusual source of book recommendations. Like it's not an Oprah pick. It's not a Reese pick. Like yeah. Those things you would see. So it kind of, gra- the tide sort of gradually came in. But at some point, the tide gets high enough and it does cover your knees, even if it doesn't mm-hmm. look like it's going to cover it for a while. Like is there, uh, publishing people might know this. Like by the time it gets to a million units of sales, is that the place where people are going to start asking about it who are book reading civilians, essentially? Uh, which yeah, is I would what we're love talking to about. know. Yeah. I would love to know because it would make number. sense to me, right? Like Twilight mm-hmm. comes out like a house of fire, and with right. six months, it's everything. It's just everywhere. But it takes because of the nature of this algorithm and the slow build and slow build and slow build and then acceleration, acceleration. It, now, are we at the crest of that? Because I think the thing you're also saying about crawdads is, in terms of its reading peak, that that's when it happened. That is the reading peak. Is there another level for this to go to? Because yeah, it does I'd... have this broader base. I don't know. I had I have this memory from I think early college of getting on a plane and walking down the aisle to find my seat and seeing like five people reading the Celestine prophecy, which wow, was a big yeah. remember <laughs> remember that it was a big deal at one point, and I think I'm waiting for that moment with Colleen Hoover of like looking around at the gate and it's not two women it's like twelve all reading. This ends with us. Are they making um, Colleen Hoover jokes on Saturday Night Live? Right, right. No, I'm serious. Are like, there that right kind of and stuff. like are there? Does it become a sort of a tentpole of identity? Like that was a piece about the Fifty Shades of Grey and the Twilight yeah. phenomenon that we didn't get with Crawdads because Crawdads is one book, and I think it's important that Twilight and Fifty Shades are yes. both series, but maybe not as important since there are multiple Colleen Hoover books too. You can become a Colleen Hoover fan. Mm. There's there are multiple things to get into. Like, are we going to start seeing? Uh, t-shirts and like Laura Miller notes in here that Colleen Hoover fans call her coho and refer to themselves as cohorts like are there cohort t-shirts I should go google this for sale on Etsy right now if they're not we need to go get (laughs) cohort.store right now (laughs) right Like, uh, I mean, Amanda and I, Amanda Nelson, who used to be one of our great coworkers, we were flying to the West Coast at, in December, and there were, we were connecting through, I think, Portland or Seattle, and there were women on our flight wearing Twilight t-shirts, yeah. and this is in the year 2021. So, like, are we going to see cohort t-shirts, and this, like, will it have an enduring sort yeah. of identity-related fandom that emerges from it, or is it just about these books? How long will it last? It certainly feels like it has the potential to be one of those identity tent poles for some of these fans in the way that being a Twilight fan or being a Fifty Shades of Grey fan was. It would almost be more remarkable at this point if it didn't become one of those just from the number of <laughs> copies sold. I mean, you're hearing us wrestle with this. Those of you listening, are, maybe you're interested, maybe you're not, maybe you think you're obtuse, maybe you're not. But I think what you're genuinely hearing Rebecca and I wrestle with is 
we haven't seen something like this before. And what does it mean? Well, we don't know what the shape of this really looks like. And you know what? No one does. Mm-hmm. Because nothing like this, to our knowledge, I mean, certainly the TikTok element is new, but the shape of a phenomenon feels like a geometric pattern we haven't really seen yeah. before. Yeah, I don't have a mental model for this. Yeah, no, <laughs> or, I, I don't either. I, I don't. How to predict what would come next or what will happen with Colleen. Colleen Hoover has a new book coming out this fall called It Starts With Us. How's that going to sell? What are people going to think about it? There are, I have so many open questions. Before we move off of yes. Coho, I want to go back to something that you had said about this is going to support a lot of other publishing. And one of the most interesting notes, I've been reading uh, Publishers Lunch's daily coverage of the Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster antitrust situation. One of the most interesting notes to come out of that is, you know, we've talked for a decade now on this podcast about how a very small percentage of books (laughs) success underwrite the existence of a whole bunch of other books. And we finally got to hear numbers this week. Wait, wait, pause there. We got to do a sponsor break and let's do those. numbers Because I want to get into that for a minute. And we got carried away as everyone did with the coho. (laughs) Okay. Give it to me. All right. 4% of the profitable titles in publishing drive 60% of the profitability. I wonder, does it scale then to the 2080, the famous power law, right? Like, if you have to, do you have to do the next four, 16% to pick up the other 20%? Oh, we, you I probably mean, do. Probably. Right? Probably mm-hmm. do. Yeah. So I had civilians ask me about this too, actually. Now, these, these are civilians who happen to be mergers and acquisitions lawyers. So, you know, <laughs> not exactly the, but like, you know, what I thought, like, I'm not a mergers and acquisitions. I don't know. And I think a lot of people don't really know, frankly, mm-hmm. like what a monopoly is, is kind of what we want to believe. You're not going to find a lot of people in the world of books and reading like, let's go, PRH, get that SMS. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what we're hearing. No. And so people are trying to ask me, like, what did I think? Is this good or bad for books? And I've got to tell you, Rebecca, I don't have a – this is going to be shocking. I don't think I have a strong opinion about this. Yeah. Sharifa and I talked about it last week, and I basically said the same thing. Yeah. We've had – you know, some of our staff have asked us what we think about this, and – I think I think I'm really interested in how the court what the court's reasoning will be for whichever mm-hmm. way the decision goes and I understand the argument of like this I understand the argument certainly of this might cause contraction that leads to less competition for authors and less opportunity to get a big payout and that that therefore might lead to fewer books available for readers but it's well established that you and I are not very concerned about fewer books being available for readers because <laughs> well, there's I said already that we said this before. I, too I, damn you, many. You know, right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's the kind of central dilemma of my trying to arrive at an opinion about it is if all we know is that there might be fewer books, that's not enough information for me to decide that I care and think that this will be bad for readers. Yeah. If it's if we had some way to know there will be fewer books and the quality of those titles will go down, then I might care. But also, like, what percentage fewer? <laughs> you know, there's all these so many contingencies and like 19 ifs mm-hmm. down the road. But if the only real reader facing proposition is there might be fewer books and maybe as a reader, you care that fewer authors get big quarter of a million dollar plus payouts okay but i think we could have many i would be in favor of a publishing industry that was like let's publish 50 percent as many books but make them all better (laughs) or Or make a higher percentage of them good or more people know about them or i don't even know what that would look like like. that's that's been maybe the most interesting and i'll say like validating part of reading a lot of the coverage is how baffled the judge is by the things that the members of the publishing industry just take as written of like, this is how it works. This is what we understand publishing to be. And you can see her in that. There was a, a, an agent who was on the stand earlier this week and the judge is asking the agent like, okay, so of the books that you acquire, that you agree to represent as an agent, how, what percentage do you expect to become bestsellers? And did you read this too, yes, Jeff? I did. <laughs> and the, the agent is like, all of them. 
And the judge is like, you hope they will all become bestsellers or you expect them all <laughs> to become bestsellers. And she sort of backpedals and is like, well, I only acquire things that I think have the potential yes. to become bestsellers, which, okay, but that's not an answer nope. <laughs> to how many really are good and do you think will be bestsellers when you're acquiring them and no one there's there are lines of questioning like this across um, moments with CEOs of several publishing houses on the stands and and nobody can nail down like here is really what we think of as how to make a good book um, or and and how to make a book be successful um, but also just I, I fewer books but higher quality better story or even like a better understanding of even what we're doing here to serve readers um i think would be interesting the like my favorite one so far was the ceo of harper collins was asked like what happens if you find out that you're under budget for your acquisitions for the year like do you go bid really high on a bunch of things what happens to the mm. extra money and he said, we don't know in real time how we're doing on our acquisitions budget. We find out at the end of the year how we did. And I was like, not even quarterly? Like, you don't get a quarterly report that's like, here was your budget for the year and here's where you're doing. Well, what? you know why that is? Because they're all fiefdoms. So they're not tracking the imprint. Like I know. I just could like someone controls the budget at the very well, top somewhere. Right. Yeah. Well, my, my mystification about that thing, I was actually surprised the judge was surprised. He hasn't mm. read his Bill Goldman. No one knows anything, right? This is the this is the work of cultural <laughs> products, yeah. right? You don't know which of them is gonna hit. Everyone takes a good shot. I think that what that agent is really saying, like, I think all of these lottery tickets are the yeah. same, or or have about the same odds of being a, a a winner, or they meet a certain minimum threshold of likelihood to be a lottery winner, mm -hmm. to be a bestseller, but they don't know which one it's going to be. Yeah, the, everyone who's made something knows that we know we've made stuff, and some of it works, and some of it sure. doesn't. And damned all if we can guess it ahead of time. Yeah, there was an interesting exchange I think last week of the judge asking, "Okay, so you don't guarantee marketing budgets for all books? Like, why would you buy a book that you're yeah. not going to market?" And that goes, I think, back to what you were saying a few minutes ago about like if we were going to get a, a a market with fewer books, at least then could we concentrate on having fewer books but making sure everybody knows those books names or getting all of them out there or giving them all an equal shot at being the successful lottery ticket there are ways that contraction in terms of the the supply of right. books could be good for the quality of the books themselves and for readers awareness and for the then the industry having maybe better data or a better understanding because some of those there is sometimes a self-fulfilling prophecy with a book that doesn't have a marketing budget where you're just hoping and this is a thing in publishing yeah. we're not gonna we don't have a marketing budget for it but we're sending out review copies we hope booksellers will recommend it we're hoping for word of mouth somewhere but if you don't win the lottery of word of mouth and you haven't invested marketing all you know is that you didn't sell that title but you don't know why you don't know why you didn't sell that title and i don't know and, there's a way around that i mean yeah. i did you follow the story about batgirl at dc at all i thought it was really fascinating bit, yeah. to see where there, I guess it's in the can. I don't know that it's effects done or whatever the the ready to be released, but this it was supposed to go to the theater or at least be released direct to video, like feature length. Leslie Grace, Batgirl, ninety million dollar budget. Some of the directors from Miss Marvel did it, and HBO. Well, it's Warner Discovery now. I'm gonna have to update my conglomerate uh, portmanteaus <laughs> here. Show title. Um, just like you know, it's better for us to just not release it because we don't have to market it, we don't have to pay it out, we don't have to do all these things. And I think the thing that's hard to understand about all of these things is these people, as as easy as to create, there's nothing easier to do than spend other people's money. The second easiest mm -hmm. thing to do is say, why don't you just do X? I guarantee you there's a reason people don't do this stuff. Um, there's, a, there's a thinking heuristic, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called Chesterfield's Fence. I'll look it up for next time. I think it was a, a British general named someone required of his officer corps that if they were out in the field doing a training exercise or whatever, if they wanted to like cut down a fence, they first had to explain why the fence was there mm. in the first place. Before saying the world should be other than it is, the, the, before doing that, you need to do why is the world is it, you know, everyone has their reasons. What is the reasons for this existing? Part of the reasons they don't know when they acquire a book, and especially this is especially true of nonfiction, they don't know what the book is. It's well, not yeah, done. Nonfiction. I mean, and, and with fiction, they might buy it thinking, okay, this is going to go through our editorial process with revisions, and they don't know what it's going to be by the end because 
the publishing is not just we're taking this fully formed thing and then putting it on target bookshelves. That's not what publishing is by and large. There is a whole middle process of the creation, packaging, editing, market, you know, and they could pay something on potential at that moment. And mm-hmm. by they get to the end of their process, they're like, this is not what we thought it could be. And I'm, I think everyone has to be sympathetic to that because you know oh, what? Totally. If they knew how to do it, all we'd have is bestsellers, which is a statistical impossibility, right? So I, I, that's, I think we're both kind of coming around to the same point is like it's a very random business. And the essential truth is no one really knows what the effect of Simon & Schuster being bought by PRH is going to be. Mm-hmm. No one does. They, they just yeah. don't. They just don't. And that's okay. But in terms of saying then you shouldn't do it, okay, I guess. It's maybe as likely as you should, but in a free market economy, is that a good enough reason to prevent people from doing trade? I don't know. You know, maybe I'm more of a capitalist than I want. So it's actually, I know that's the case. <laughs> I look forward to those emails you're going to get. About well, I, I just don't know. I mean, the, the the data we'd like to see, let's go to Court of Rightness for a minute, Rebecca. Mm. What data that, well, I'm assuming no, most of this doesn't exist. What data would you like to see that would help you make up your mind? I have one kind of thing in mind, so I'm stacking the deck a little bit, but does anything occur to you? Well, there's been a lot of, not angst, but a lot of like hand-wringing in this trial about which economic models of the merger are accurate. Yeah. And just the fact that nobody can agree on the best way to model these businesses is is first right. <laughs> a piece of it. I mean... I would, I think, start fresh. Like, I kind of reject the premise of the thing we're concerned about here is that fewer authors are going to make a quarter of a million dollars or more. Like, that's, and I don't know how the DOJ arrived at that as the core focus of it, but it is the core focus of this case that fewer authors will have a shot at becoming an anticipated best selling book as the term of art that they've chosen here. Right. And, because isn't to a first approximation your, your chance of that happening zero? Your expected well, and, average yeah, outcome like, as an author is a 0% chance the, of being a best-selling author. And the thing that the publishers keep saying is we don't know how to anticipate what will be a best-selling book. You know, these are lottery tickets. Yeah. Like the Bob quotes this meme all the time that goes around the finance world. It's like, sir, this is a casino. (laughs) (laughs) And like you're in the casino here. You are pulling the arm of the little lottery game. And and the publishing folks keep saying that, like, we think these all have a chance. And if we think it's a strong enough chance, we're going to pay 250 or more to hit this category that the Department of Justice has invented about anticipated right. best-selling titles. I don't know what, I guess I would want to see an, an economic model of this that somebody that we knew was reliable of here is what will happen. Mm-hmm. Here, Here is a good prediction of how many fewer books will exist how many fewer authors like if we have to take the premises of this case as the givens how many fewer books will exist for readers and how many fewer authors will get these kinds of big deals and what this does to the other publishing houses buying power for Mm -hmm. acquisitions of big titles because if it leads to even more contraction that consolidates power around Penguin Random House and decreases competition. I am in favor of as much robust competition as possible in a market. I think what really needs to happen is someone needs to go back to square one and acknowledge that trying to shore up power against Amazon is a really big piece of this. But Penguin and Sharif and I talked about it last yeah. week. P- PRH and Simon and Schuster, though, can't show up in court and say, the reason you should let us do this is so we can, like, we want to be a monopoly so we can shore up strength against another monopoly. But mm-hmm. that's really what's going on here. And so I would like to see the models of if they merge, does it give the publishing industry greater leverage or ballast against the threat of Amazon? Or does it create contraction and so much less competition yeah. that we end up with just PRH, Simon & Schuster, or Harper, with everybody all under one umbrella? Let me see how this goes, because I think we're thinking along the same wavelength. I guess to go to use the lottery ticket example, how much is a regular lottery ticket? Oh, Two, five no bucks? I have no idea. Let's say it's a dollar, just because that makes the math easier. So PRH is basically arguing, as far as I understand it, we just want to have more lottery tickets. And buying Simon & Schuster allows us to have the right to buy more lottery tickets at a dollar piece. We're not actually looking to pay less than a dollar per lottery ticket, but because the game is random, the more lottery tickets you have, 
the bigger, the more chances you'll have to have mm-hmm. it ends with us or crawdads, which is a Simon title. And maybe you guys talked about this notably in the testimony. Everyone said we didn't think that was going to be a bestseller. Yeah. So interesting case there. <laughs> um, what I would like to know is, is the pr- is that really what's going to happen? Or because it'll be so much more powerful rather than paying off, because they're paying authors and their agents essentially a dollar for the lottery ticket. Are they going to be paying 95 cents right. because the market for lottery tickets has shrunk? I don't know the answer to that. And I think there's a world in which maybe you could answer this question in the, um, in the NBA, the union's contract, and I don't know the exact numbers, but the salary cap is a fixed percentage of all revenues mm-hmm. that, the, that the, the league takes in. So maybe that'd be a number, another way of thinking of it. Of all the money that publishing takes in, what percent in 1991 went to authors and how different is that today than then? Is it bigger or smaller? Because if the the major concern is that authors will get squeezed, the suppliers, the little guys will get crushed. Well, then sure. sure. Could we not see Couldn't PRH not provide their historical share of revenue that they paid out to authors and agents, the creators? Mm -hmm. It seems like that's a number. We have this ourselves. How much do we pay for, contract work how much we pay for creators we know this and we're you know one day of colleen hoover sales at this point (laughs) per per year so i think that's the one because if that's the concern and i would believe that if someone said to Mm -hmm. me there are half as many dollars flowing into author the people making writing the books the people who are really investing from nothing right the startup founders to use their angel investor metaphor they like so much is that number going down or up and it, that would help me decide because if it's going down precipitously, I would be against it. I would mm-hmm. because I'm going to buy the books no matter what. I tell you what hasn't gone down is how much I pay for a goddamn book. Can I tell <laughs> how much I'm paying for hardcovers now? Oh, oh my spicy. God. It is spicy. It is now. wild. It's spicy. And I know it's inflation and everything else, but inflation also means that those authors, their expenses have gone up as well. So that would be the one I'd be convinced by. If it's mm-hmm. flat over the last 20 years, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't seem to matter. There's been consolidation. If it's down remarkably, I'll sing a different tune. I just, I guess uh, to quote our, our friend um, Leo from the West Wing, I'm not convinced because you haven't convinced me. That's where right. I end up uh, yep. at this point. Oh, we went off on that one. Do you, want, <laughs> do you have any frontless four you want to hit before we get out of here? I have a couple little quickies. Yeah, let's go. Um, I read The Last White Man by Mohsin Hamid yeah. um, last week. Really interesting premise. I'm still thinking about it. The book, like the reading experience itself was a little, I think, quieter than I was expecting, which is probably a bad job on my part because he's always pretty quiet. Um, but a really interesting concept that I'm going to be poking at for a while. Um, I think that one's going to grow in my estimation over mm-hmm. time. Uh, and then I'm in the middle of Battling the Big Lie by Dan Pfeiffer, mm-hmm. which I did not include in my summer books draft. And then I think in the debrief from that, I was like, here's what I'm looking at, but I didn't put it in. You're like, oh, you should have put that one in. And it is a look at really the, I'm at the halfway mark, at least. It's a history of how the GOP built a disinformation and misinformation mass media machine over decades um, and how useful that has been for the state of politics and for like having landed us in this place that we are now where it feels like people on the left and people on the right are living in completely different versions of reality. He's like, that's because we are. Let us trace how we arrived at at this place. So that's useful in a very like it's it's ungaslighting me, I guess, mm. about why things feel this way. It's also terrifying. And then he's going to uh, according to, you know, the intro of the book, he will move into then how do those of us on the left, especially how can the Democratic Party take this understanding of what the GOP has successfully done and harnessed and use it for like use the powers for good um, to counteract disinformation and misinformation and and compete with without becoming evil ourselves. Um, so I'm interested to see what the recommendation is. My I don't know, my Dan Pfeiffer take is always that the information is really good and I feel like it would be <laughs> it would have a broader audience if he could tone down the like smug snark stuff a little yeah. bit. This is always my complaint about the pod save guys in general. Yeah. Um, is that a feature but, or a bug? I don't, I'm not in I think it depends system. on who you are. But I for, think if I you're, mean, they, it must be a feature. That's I think a it's huge a feature. company right now. People yeah, like there's like a self-satisfied. Yeah, I don't like that. Smug liberal thing about yeah. some of it that I don't love. Um, and that I think this information is really mm-hmm. astonishing and troubling. Like I knew 
chunks of this, but the details about how it's made and really how it's been generated and built over like 40 years that we've arrived at the place that we are now and and really how much the internet amplified it this is the kind of stuff that i wish like every general reader of a newspaper mm-hmm. <laughs> would get their hands on and and get their heads around but that voice delivering it is certainly not appealing and accessible to not, not even to all liberals <laughs> much less reaching folks in the middle um, the signal reading experience for me since I last talked to you, and I, mm-hmm. I don't know if we have time for, I'm not even sure if you're interested. I'm not even sure if I have anything interesting to say, which <laughs> okay. is a real good way to, to, to begin a segment or the possibility one. I did read Fire and Blood by one George R.R. R. Martin while I was Oh yeah. Writing. Is that the first one? No, it is the, the thing that the new HBO series is based on House oh, of the Dragon. okay. And Rebecca, a couple of interesting things. This is a 784 page book. Mm. That George wrote, George, we're friends now. I've, yeah, I've obviously. mentioned him, you know, 12 times on a pod, so I can call him by his first name. Wrote, I don't really know, I didn't look at the publishing, but let's say he wrote this in addition to the main books in A Song of Ice and Fire. So the thing you saw on HBO, Game of Thrones, that you didn't watch, not you, the other you out mm-hmm. there that are listening. This was secondary material to this. This was backstory, not even to any of the characters we know. <laughs> But to great, great 200 years before the events that preceded <laughs> the first season of Game of Thrones on, on, and 784 pages on it. Oh, boy. It's a lot of pages. I think if he had it to do over again, he may not have spent his writing time that way. That's what mm. I'm saying right now. The other, okay. And it's not a fair example because it is written, I don't even know what to call it. Like, it's a chronicle of this, the House Targaryen, for those who know who know. The dragon rider, silver-haired, purple-eyed folks who came and took over Middle-earth. I know it's not that, but it is. Trust me, it is. <laughs> it might as well be might for as what well I know be. about yeah, it. Yeah, right. Um, it's a chronicle of like their comings and goings, but it's not written as a novel. It's written as a scholar just recounting what happened. Oh. And there is a lot in there. And this one, I think, will make a better TV show than a book because, you know, the characters and whatever, they're going to pick something. I think it's like... It could have been the whole Ice and Fire series itself. It could have been nine <laughs> books if it was given characterization and dialogue and plot and setting. Like, this is just, it's almost just a list of stuff that happens and everyone hmm. and what happens. It's a fascinating document. I think it really speaks to maybe unparalleled, maybe only Tolkien was as interested in world building as Martin, maybe even liked it better than the actual stuff. Um it was wild. I, I have no idea if I liked it. I have no way of answering that. I didn't Are you find glad myself. Glad you read it. I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I read it. But I think it also doesn't represent the main of mm. what people have come to like from George. I also don't think it will be any indication of the tone or my reading or my my viewing pleasure of House of the Dragon because it's going to be a different thing. Like some of the the plot points will be there, but the characterization and stuff is completely different. Um, I don't know. So that's a very mixed, it's not even a review, but the experience was very strange. I'm not sure. I'm glad I read it, but I don't know if it, I learned anything. I'm not really sure what I oh, learned. Interesting. And, and sorry, side note, and then we'll get out of here. I don't know what brought me to think of this, but I did look up because the Cimmerillion, you remember, did you ever read yeah, the Cimmerillion? Yeah. I you, did you, not you, read, you it, read it, but it's in my awareness. I'm aware I think of it's it, yeah. kind of the same thing for Tolkien. Like it's, it's back matter. It's, you mm-hmm. know, here's what the monk said about whatever. 4,000 years ago, that was the best-selling fiction book of 1972. Isn't that a wild stat? That is wild. That is, people liked that stuff uh, in 19... It also, it kind of reframed my whole fantasy ascendancy thing. Mm. Was it, it wasn't that people didn't like it, they just didn't get enough of it. Yeah, that's probably it. They were doing a lot of interesting drugs in 1972 also. Anyway, that, I've got some other stuff to talk about, but I, I wanted to clear out for George right. for a second. My first general like look at the look at the sun without sunglasses, uh, George R. Martin experience, and it was a lot, uh, a lot. Sounds a, like it. People really like to cut off people's balls and feed it to them. That's all I know. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that here in the yeah, last moment. Yeah, see of if you if, if you you haven't seen the show, <laughs> everyone me. out there, everyone who's seen the show is like, yeah, that sounds that tracks. <laughs> Wow. As, as I say that, show notes, bookride.com slash listen. Can <laughs> Give email me a us minute po- to recover. Email us at podcast at bookride.com. If you'd like to become a patron, you can. 
at patreon.com slash bookriotpodcast. The most recent one was me monologuing to myself about stuff that I have read, um, which is maybe the most narcissistic thing a book podcaster can do. Um, <laughs> and then next week we, we will release, but we have... Um, we're, we're ready. We're going to record Adaptation of Never Let Me Go. In our waning moment here, we don't have anything on the dock for next week's bonus. Can I pitch you something right now? And maybe people sure. can tell us if they like it. I think I, I hinted at a John Nash-like model of a different book rating system. Mm. Would you like, could I pitch that to you for 25 minutes as a bonus I, episode? How interesting would you I would, would love that. that. Yes. Uh, I'm going to have to get out some pen and paper. I don't know. We have the screen share. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm going to need visual aids. I've been thinking about this a lot. It'll go nowhere, but there's something, whatever well, whatever my dopamine centers are, really want to think about this. So maybe, can, maybe I can get rid of it. We can always do a screen recording that the oh, patrons God. can watch later. <laughs> or you could just make a slide deck that we could embed. <laughs> How about some transparencies? You remember transparencies? Great. Yeah, I do. And I would be here for that. Bring, please bring visual aids. How, what percentage of transparencies were put on upside down first? 85% or higher? The over-under is 85%. And then backwards. Well, I look forward to this. Okay. All right. So tentatively plan on uh, the next one being, I have to come up with a name. I'll call it the Book Review Spider. That's that's kind of what I've been thinking of it is. So Great. That's what we call a tease. All right, Rebecca, thanks so much. 